Behold, a gateway to your own past, if you wish. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. History is strange. It's alien. And it won't give us what we would like to have. The West Coco Pharmacy bringing you hour three of a Tuesday morning on this 14th of November, 2023. Glad you're along for this Tuesday edition of Bill Mick Live. In our 8 o'clock hour on Tuesdays, Dave Bowman joins us from Silverdale, Washington with Dave Does History. Always a fun hour. Glad you're along for it. And uh, we'll let you in in the final segment as far as calls and the like may go. Headline is at uh, BillMick.com today. The bank examiners in the Supreme Court covered both of those early in the show. Dave, where are we going in history today, man? So a long time ago... There was this idea, and and you may remember this, Bill, you may not. Remember this theory about the so-called missile gap theory? Missile gap, I don't remember it by that name. The idea here was that President Kennedy, who was actually a senator then, he was running for president of the United States in 1960, kept going on and on and on about how the Soviet Union had billions upon billions of missiles, and we didn't have enough. And this was a... This was a problem. And so this became known as the missile gap. The Soviets outnumbered us in missiles. And and it was one of those things that it became a huge issue in the 1960 campaign. But it was also a great example of how we use a crisis, even a manufactured crisis, to generate support and interest of things. As it turned out later on, there never was a missile gap. There never was, it wasn't even close. I mean, it, it just didn't happen. And one of the things Richard Nixon was upset about was that he knew that there wasn't a missile gap, but for some reason, Eisenhower wouldn't go out and say it publicly. And so he thought he was being backstabbed by Eisenhower. Anyway, the whole point of this whole thing was that here was this idea, this manufactured fear that was used to create a political effect. To great to great effect. It worked very well. Kennedy wins the wins the presidency and the military industrial complex goes on to build all that stuff. But that's just one example. The man that was born this day, eleven fourteen, November fourteenth, in nineteen oh eight, a guy by the name of Joseph McCarthy, has gone down in the American lexicon as a great example of excess, and yet at the same time to some degree, heroism. Now, I am not here today today to debate whether McCarthy was right or whether he was wrong. If you're going to come at me with that, we're not going to have a whole lot to discuss. We're going to caveat that, yes, there were communists in the government, and we're also going to caveat that McCarthy's methods were excessive and problematic. What we want to look at today is, are there lessons that we could learn from this and whether or not we can go back in history and see if history continues to repeat itself. And at the same time, maybe there's some things we don't know about McCarthy that might change a little bit as to how we view him. We continue in just a minute on Bill McLeod. 
back to Dave and Dave's, Dave does history. So Joe McCarthy, Dave, um, right or wrong. And, and you look around today and you're thinking it had to be right, but at least partially anyway. Where are you taking us with this? Well, who is Joe McCarthy? I mean, if you went out in the streets or even the audience and said, okay, who was Joe McCarthy? Most people know that he was a senator. Many people will even know that he was from Wisconsin, where the real Americans live, which we talked about in the first hour with someone trying to take advantage of a situation to control what people thought and did. Uh-huh. If you go back to the first hour. You're saying which, this is a habit of Wisconsinites? Ugh. I'm just saying Wisconsin is a strange and interesting place, especially politically. <laughs> but if you go back and check that out at BillMick.com, you can you can listen to that first hour. He was born, as I said, November 14th, 1908 in Wisconsin, grew up in a large rural Irish Catholic family and relatively modest education, you know, one room country schools, that kind of start, that kind of stuff. And uh, completed his high school in just one year. So he's not a dumb guy by any stretch of the imagination. He ends up going to law school uh, with his degree from Marquette University, which used to be a basketball powerhouse. I don't know if they still are or not. Uh, Don't think so. But so, Bill, he's a lawyer. And, of course, we talked about lawyers in the second hour. (laughs) A little continuity to what we're doing today. Right. I always try to do that. After practicing laws for, for a few years, he kind of got the bug and decided he wanted to be in political office. And so he ran for a job as a district attorney, as a Democrat in Wisconsin. Now, you got to understand Wisconsin politics, as I said, are very, very strange, especially in the first half and into the second half of the 20th century. Wisconsin is one of those places that it's not like anywhere else. I mean... You have legitimately progressive Republicans, progressive Democrats, conservative Republicans, conservative Democrats. You have a strong socialist element in Wisconsin. You have this. Um, it's a broad swath of the population. Right. And, in, and then you have this independent farm movement, which actually manages to get people elected to Congress at one point. And so you have to play. You have to play the game really well. And McCarthy runs for this district attorney job as a Democrat and gets he gets defeated. So he does what so many politicians do in Wisconsin, where party affiliation is kind of one of those things that sort of blows with the wind. Puts his fingers in the air, realizes that in his chosen area, Republicans are stronger And so he switches to the Republican Party. And then he wins an election as a Republican. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not clear if he changed his politics or if he just changed his party. There's not enough early information about him to know that he was being, uh, you know, sarcastic or whatever. Uh, As I've seen so many politicians in California change parties and change areas just because they were trying to win. It's possible that he was doing that. It's possible that he was just playing the Wisconsin game the best way to play it. But he switches to Republican, and he becomes a circuit judge in 1939. When World War II breaks out, he joins the Marines. He joins the United States Marines. Hoorah. By the way, their birthday was earlier this week. Mm -hmm. So he 
takes this time in the military where he's an intelligence officer and he does what many intelligence officers, many desk-bound officers do, like, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, and he manages to get himself assigned to some air, air missions where he actually flies in combat. Did he do as much as he will later claim that he did? The records don't support that. It appears that he may have embellished his military record later on. For it's never happened. That has never gone event. on. Yeah, it's not like Lyndon Johnson did that. But, you know, the bottom line is, it's really not clear that he did all the things that he claims to have done, which, of course, becomes an issue with, with McCarthy later on, making claims that may or may not be supportable. The The bottom line is, he did serve, and this is something that I think for me personally, Bill, is important. I don't think that people need to embellish their military careers. I just, that pisses me off. But at the same time, when somebody criticizes someone who did serve because, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't as important as they think it should be, I, I get a little snitty about that. I'm, uh-huh. not a, I'm not a McCain supporter, as you well know. But John McCain flew 20-plus missions into downtown Hanoi, and most of the people that criticize him didn't. So, True. you know, let's, let's, let's put some context on this stuff. In the, post-war con- in the post-war climate in the United States, the Cold War really began to see a rise in fear of communism. Not anti-communism in the terms that we think of today, but fear of it. People were actually afraid of communism. And I was raised by parents and grandparents who came out of that era. I was raised with that fear of communism, something that is, is directly affected my life. For the, Many of them, most yeah. Of them. Right. If you're a politician and you want to go far in life, do you play on people's fears or do you play on people's, you know, happiness or whatever? That becomes the question. For McCarthy, looking around and seeing the fear that was being promulgated by this fear of communism, he saw that opportunity, and he understood that this was something he could tap into. Rightfully or wrongfully, that's not what we're debating today, Rightfully or wrongfully, he saw that fear as useful politically, and he was not the only one. Kennedy did the same exact thing a few years later. This was in the face of Truman. It would later be in the face of Eisenhower, who disagreed with him. But he saw that fear, and in 1950, he would give a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, where he would hold up a piece of paper and claim that he had a list of 257 communists infiltrating the United States government. Nobody ever saw the list. Nobody ever counted the names.
joins us for our weekly dive into history. Pay attention, there will be a test. Nah, there won't be a test, but you will be held accountable. Bill McLive. Thanks, Victor Lyle. Dave Bowman is with us from Silverdale, Washington today. The West Cocoa Pharmacy making this hour possible. Talking about Joe McCarthy and uh, the Red Scare. So, politician taking advantage of fears, Dave, or legitimate concern over the way the country was going? Well, see, and that's the that's the question, Bill. I mean, when you're dealing with the public, if the public is terrified of something, is it a legitimate concern or not? And if you're a politician, it can be. It yeah, can be, but is it? And there's this. There's this fine line there that, you know, people don't want to talk about, but at the same time, maybe you have to. And this is something you and I run into all the time. We can't just go on the air and start slinging things indiscriminately. We have opinions, but we have to be clear that there's a difference between an opinion and an actual fact. Mm-hmm. So if I go on the air and say the mayor of Modesto is, you know, a dirtbag and he's, he's, you know, not trustworthy and those kinds of things, it's an opinion. But if I go on the air and start saying that he has illegal contributions in the amount, the exact amount of $12,528, I damn well had better have some proof of that. Sure. Because if I don't, not only is he going to come back at me, but but I'm going to lose credibility with my audience. So opinions, fine. When you start slinging alleged facts, you better have some backup. When McCarthy gave his speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, on Lincoln Day in 1950, that's one of the things he did. He held up that piece of paper. He said, I have a list of 257 communists who have infiltrated the United States government. Now, again, Nobody ever saw the list, never gave out the names that were on that list, never provided any evidence of this. Were there 257 communists in the United States government? I'm just going to go ahead and say probably, but did he provide any actual proof of that? And what became the almost a running joke, in fact, if you've ever seen the movie, the original movie, the good one, of the Manchurian candidate, the the senator, Johnny Islin, does this same thing. I have a list of 257 communists, and then it's later on, it's I have a list of 75 communists, or I have a list of this number of communists. The number changes. Because, and I, and I almost hate to say this, it was a lie. He didn't know that. He may have been accurate, but he didn't actually know that, nor did he have any actual... It's that word that lawyers use. Oh, yeah, evidence of this. So do you know whether or not any of the names that would have been on the list were ever brought up in, in any of the hearings? Did Were there actual government employees that were outed in those hearings and any evidence there? There would, be, there would be names thrown out. But again, you come back to, is there any actual evidence? Now, some people said, yes, I'm communist affiliated or I've been affiliated with this agency that is communist. Does that mean that you're actively trying to overthrow the United States government? It could mean that. But to a politician, 
it's more beneficial to have the fear of that person potentially doing that than it is mm-hmm. to actually have them doing that. Well, I don't think you saw the movie, but I, I did go see Oppenheimer, and I thought it was very well done. But he had communist affiliations, mainly because he was chasing a commie skirt. So there you go. Which is not all that unusual. I mean, no. we're talking about government service here, which we also talked about in the second hour, where, where you know, people tend to do those kinds of things because it's stressful jobs. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, McCarthy's accusations were were fantastic. They made great headlines and they played on those fears, which may or may not be based in fact. But the problem is. He couldn't get his numbers straight. He couldn't get his evidence into into court. He couldn't get his evidence into his, his accusations into evidence. And so consequently, what he was really doing was just muckracking and raising hell, which politically speaking is advantageous. But there's that First Amendment thing, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of association. And he kept running into that little problem as well. So McCarthy, a little scant on evidence and really heavy on the implication. What was his support level like, Dave, in in, in the public? Was I mean, the first thing that came to my mind, and I don't mean any insult to, to Trump supporters here, but they are very much at a fever pitch in their support of Donald Trump. Was it like that for McCarthy? Initially, it was very much like that. Initially, it was very much, oh, my God, the government is bleeding red with communists. It's so full of communists that you can't swing a dead cat on a two-foot string without hitting one. That's how many communists there are in the government. But the problem is, it's all well and good to make that accusation, but where's the actual evidence? And if you have newspapers printing this and you have, this is the very early days of television, it's radio is still king. Imagine being a talk radio host like we are, Bill, in 1950 after his wheeling speech. Imagine how that is. You've got Truman, who's the, currently the president at that point, who just, he just, I mean, Truman hates communism. But he doesn't really like McCarthy either because McCarthy is, you know, he's abrasive. He's rude. He's he's banging a drum right. without bringing the stick. And, of course, he's going to be out of office eventually. And Eisenhower is going to come in. And Eisenhower, is there anybody in the world that's more anti-communist than Eisenhower? Would anybody ever suspect Dwight David Eisenhower of a being a communist or be even leaning into communism? Of course not. No. No, but McCarthy, he's like, well, you're too soft on them. And and Eisenhower's policy is I'll just ignore him because if I if I engage him, I'm giving him credibility. So if I stay away from him, you know, it's just some guy's lips flapping in the wind. The the whole process by which the, the nation initially engages with McCarthyism is incredible to watch. It's a great study in psychology and, you know, in politics. It, it explodes. It, to answer your question, it becomes huge. But then it begins to fade because... Oh, it's the media reporting what he's saying, not yes. necessarily going back and looking for the information in support of it. Until they start asking that question, where's the list? 
and he never provides it. Isn't that something? Holy cow. How long does it take for the tide to turn on McCarthy? Oh, two or three years. By the time okay. we get to the, the hearings, there, things will begin to collapse. Yeah, it, 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 it gets to that point. And we will get there in our next segment of Bill Mick Live. Also in that segment, we'll let you in. If you want to talk this uh, Red Scare, 321-768-1240 as we wrap up a Tuesday on 92.7 FM WMMB. We're back in moments. Time to call? Drop your thoughts to us with the Talk Back feature on the iHeartRadio app. The West Cocoa Pharmacy, this hour, sponsor of Bill Mick Live, an hour in which Dave does history. Dave Bowman is with us talking to Joe McCarthy in the Red Scare. And uh, it, it's he's gotten to the point that he, he mustered up with this support, fervent at least at one point, Dave, where now he's got Senate hearings to, to play with this. He got Senate hearings, but. Again, the whole Red Scare, which, again, may have been, I stipulate, yes, there were communists in the government. There were Democrats in the government. And there were Republicans in the government. There was as, as a cross-section of society. So was he correct in that sense? Yes. The question is whether or not fanning the flames of fear was a legitimate response to that or not. And right. That, that in lies the question. McCarthy is also a man of great he 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 has some things about him that are weird. One of the things that will happen is there is a trial for the for the Nazi soldiers that committed the Malmedy massacre, which was happening during the Battle of the Bulge. American POWs were executed. The Germans responsible were captured, put on trial and sentenced to death. And Joe McCarthy, in the middle of all of this, uh, this red scare, comes out and says, no, they shouldn't be putting be put to death. They, they're not guilty. And he gets into this huge argument over whether or not these soldiers should be shot or hung because for war crimes or not. And he, he seemingly comes out as uh, almost pro-Nazi in, in some ways. That's kind of the way he seems to appear. So it's this, it's this huge dichotomy with him. The problem is that as this goes on and on and on, and we don't have time to go through all the hearings, we don't have time to go through all that stuff. As time goes on, more and more he becomes almost a caricature of himself with the whole, there are X number of communists in the government right now. The government is bleeding communists. The government is being overrun by communists. And every time someone says to him, where's the actual evidence? You can't accuse people without evidence. Otherwise, it's just your opinion. And the evidence is never forthcoming. 
but as he holds these hearings, he becomes very aggressive and very, I don't know, rude. And it's almost seem as if he is battering witnesses, badgering witnesses. He is pushing. He's just, he's abusing his power, Bill. And again, you come back to, don't we have a First Amendment in this country? Mm-hmm. Even if I disagree with you, is it my is it my job to badger you about it? Remember what we were talking about last hour about that that chilling element of speech. And in that environment, more and more people were beginning to see that in this way. And so eventually he is taken down, I guess. Edward R. Murrow, the famous reporter from World War II, does a television special on McCarthy in which he asks that question. Look, are we Americans? Do we believe in these things, these these First Amendment ideas? If McCarthy has proof, then he needs to provide it. Otherwise, he needs to shut up. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the Senate actually censures him for abuse of power, disrespect. He's 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 having a lot of conflict with these other branches, and people are just tired of dealing with him because. And I I use this term somewhat reluctantly, but he's just a jerk, and everybody hates him. Was he right? It's possible, but. That's, you know, you you don't win battles that way. And as the fear begins to subside, his efforts become less and less effective. And eventually, he's out of the Senate, and by the ripe old age of 48, he's dead. Really? The question is, did we learn anything from this? Sometimes I'm not so sure. And we continue in 60 seconds on Bill McLive. Dave, recent example, White Plains, New York, Palestinian sympathizer driving around that area with pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli, some very ugly things being said on the side of his vehicle, Nazi symbols, those kind of things. And this guy is stopped and eventually arrested. But fortunately for the cops in play, it wasn't over his speech. It wasn't over what he was advocating with his signage on his vehicle. It was because he'd scrawled some of it across the windshield, obscuring his view. They had a reason to stop the guy and maybe stopped a potential act because he was armed. They did find a loaded firearm in the vehicle, and he was on his way to D.C. for something. So um, how important is the free speech aspect here? The guy, if he hadn't put the markings on his windshield, perfectly legit to walk around with a very unpopular opinion on his vehicle. And and as I've said on numerous occasions, I'm I'm a free speech radical. I'm not even a free speech radical, Bill. I'm a First Amendment radical. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like the idea of suppressing speech because I don't like it. Does that mean that we have to tolerate everything? That's a debatable issue. But when you come at stuff from a libertarian standpoint, you know, free speech is free speech. Freedom of religion is freedom of religion. But when you cross the line and, you know, your rights end where they violate my rights, Mm -hmm. that's where I think people forget that kind of thing. In the case of McCarthy, it wasn't just that he was screeching about the Red Scare. It was that he made accusations. He ruined people's lives without ever proving anything. 
Were they communists? Certainly possible. But even if they were, is that how you do that? Is that how we do this in America? And that's what Murrow asked. And were they able to be in a position to implement those policies in this country? Were they trying an overthrow of the government? It didn't appear to be the case, right? Right. And that's what Edward Murrow asks him. Look, if they are, where's the evidence? And why aren't you allowing them as Americans to defend themselves? And that's that therein lies the problem. I think we see a lot of this today and, and not just in that aspect. We talked about this earlier in the show about this idea of chilling of speech. This is essentially what McCarthy was doing. He was chilling speech. We get into situations where we don't want to talk about things because it turns into an argument. Well, isn't that the same kind of the same thing McCarthy was doing? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Line one, you're up first in this hour, Bill McLeod. Good morning. Uh, good morning. This is Mario. Yeah, Mario, hey, what do you uh, think? Uh, well, at, at, back at that time, uh, the Americans were still getting over the trauma of Nazism, and communism was on the other side of the planet. It wasn't something they had to worry about because it was in China and, it, and, and in the Soviet Union. However, uh, uh, McCarthy... Uh, may have awakened Americans, a significant you know, percentage of Americans, to the dangers of socialism here at home. And, and that's the one good thing I think he did, because I think otherwise we'd probably be uh, communists by now. All right, Mario, thanks. You think, Dave, that uh, it did serve to wake America up to the threat that was there? Or did we already know that? Well, the question is, what was the threat? Was the threat the fear of communism? And, and Mario is missing that point there. Americans were terrified of communism in the 1940s and 1950s. But did he raise, did, did, did he educate us about that fear or the fear of our own government being willing to violate our own constitution to deal with that fear? Which did uh, he raise? That's, that's a great point. Line two, good morning. You're on Bill McLeod. Morning, Bill. Dave, happy belated Veteran Day, Brophy Ops Brody. Thanks, Brody. What's up here, sir? Um, the Red Scare of McCarthyism. The Dave, do you or Bill, do y'all see any similarity to maybe uh, the the Orange Man Bad Scare and the um, Patriot, which it wasn't so patriotic after nine eleven, and all the familiar going on interesting question let me let uh, dave answer first dave go ahead yes i see a lot of similarities between that and particularly the patriot act but that's not the only one how many times does our government react to fear and and how many times does the government fan those fears and, and i don't really care which side you're talking about republican or democrat fan those fears in order to generate a reaction now again i go back to what edward murrow said is what are we? Are we Americans? Is this the way we're supposed to handle this? Or are we supposed to react with a government slapdown of whatever it is that a an alleged majority has decided is, is a bad idea? The solution... Like we're killing the planet. We need electric cars, no gas stoves, and your ceiling fan in your home has to be more efficient. In some ways, yes. That's the yeah. same thing. We're fanning fears, and we're using government, but is that how we actually do that? And as I've said a billion times, the answer to bad speech is good speech. But if we don't allow the good speech, how do we solve the problem? 
it may be that it may have been that McCarthy was right. It may be that Bush was right. But how do we know? Because we don't have that debate. We don't have those discussions. And therein lies the problem, because that's not what we are supposed to be doing. Do you find that even our politicians are afraid to have the conversations? Yes. Politicians aren't about protecting the Constitution. I'm, I'm sorry. Get me off. On. Politicians are about power and getting reelected. Be- and their argument is, well, if I don't get reelected, I can't I can't get anything done. Well, what have you gotten done in the first place? What have you actually done to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, to uphold the rights that we as Americans have? And if the answer is, well, I got reelected, you're useless. But they don't want to hear that. We hear a lot of talking points, a lot of bravado, especially from a Senate president, a Speaker of the House, uh, a majority or minority leader in either and and they get a lot of play, but it is all political talking points, and it, it's no real back to our presidential debates, no substantive debate or discussion of solving issues. Is it just fanning fears, or is it actual substance? And the answer, the the easy way to get to the bottom of it is to say, "Where's your evidence? Show me the proof." And if they mm-hmm. don't have any, they're lying. Oh, so like when their mouth's moving. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> Dave Bowman, it's always a fun three hours now that you've been joining us for the whole show, but especially this final hour on a Tuesday where you bring us that interesting look at history that we may not be able to get quite anywhere else. So thank you much for your time, sir, and for uh, joining us from Silverdale, Washington. We will be off next week because I'll be on vacation. I will see you in a couple weeks. Yeah, that sounds good. I look forward to that. 